Children can be dismissed if they would like, and why don't you stand with me um, for the reading of God's Word from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, and I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but to no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would continue to be present this morning that your Holy Spirit would come and you would illuminate your word to us, that you would help us to understand it and you would empower us to apply it, that you would convict the sinner, that you would encourage the weak and you would give strength and comfort to the brokenhearted. And would your word do what it always does and not return void. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, Francis Barber was born as a slave in Jamaica, but he died an heir in England. At 10 years old, his owner moved him from Jamaica to England, and his master died and then set him free, but he kind of struggled to find work. He eventually found himself working as a servant to a man named Samuel Johnson. And Johnson was a famous writer at that point. And they eventually became friends, and Francis worked closely with Sam, including on his most famous work, A Dictionary of the English Language, which was highly regarded at the time. But Johnson had no children, and when he died, he made Barber his heir. He left him a yearly inheritance. He left him all of his books and his papers and even a gold watch. It was controversial at the time. People were angry and they were upset that a former slave and a black man would get such an inheritance. But the will was airtight and it had to be followed. And in a similar way, or as such, as Paul says, we too as Christians have experienced a transformation much like Francis Barber's. 
And like Francis Barber, there are those who oppose our inheritance and want us to return to chains. And our passage this morning is about the transformation the gospel brings from slavery to becoming an heir. And so what this morning what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how the gospel transforms us, how the law transforms us, and then finally how we should live. So first we'll look at how the gospel transforms us. And what we see is that the gospel transforms us from slaves into heirs. That the gospel transforms us from slaves into heirs. And this is a discussion that Paul really is continuing from last week if you were with us in Galatians 3. He talked about before how the law was our babysitter, right? Or it was our temporary guardian until we grew up. And so he kind of continues that theme here this morning. In verse 1, he gives some more details. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He continues, right, to explain this tradition of a child who's going to inherit a rich estate, but he he doesn't have all of his freedom yet. He might own everything in the future, but right now he is, may as well just be a slave. Because as the heir, he's under the guardianship and supervision of these managers. People who one day he might be able to fire, but for now they're his bosses. The heir has to wait until he comes of age, like a child who's put under a family trust until they can get old enough to get control of it. Paul uses this story as an illustration. This is our previous state before the gospel comes and transforms us. In verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved. Before being born again, before putting your faith in Jesus, before Christ came to break every chain, we were enslaved in chains. But what were you enslaved by? He tells us, well, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, interpreting that phrase, elementary principles, can get a little tricky. There's different opinions. Some say that it could mean, well, the elements of the universe, earth, wind, water, and fire, because those were somewhat deified by the Greeks. Could refer to demonic spirits and or sin, which is at war with the kingdom of God. But in the context of this passage, and really, I mean, the whole book of Galatians, it seems like the answer is the law, I think. And we can see this because elementary principles, it comes from a Greek word, um, stoion, or stoikeion, which is the the basic kind of components of something, especially in in the context of learning, which is the context of the Galatians, right, that Paul has been using and talking about. It's kind of the foundational principles of learning. So the basic religious principles, like the numbers on a clock or the letters of the alphabet. So when you read elementary principles there, you can think of elementary school. You can think of the ABCs, Christianity. And this is kind of a derogatory way that Paul's referring to the law, isn't it? I mean, he's saying, well, that's like the kindergarten, the faith. You should have moved on from that. shouldn't stay in kindergarten forever. You know, I enjoy school, right? I've got two master's degrees, and every now and then I'm tempted and think I might go get a doctorate. But you know, how foolish would it be? Instead of going to apply for a PhD somewhere, I went down to Plato to sign up for kindergarten because I want to enroll again. I want to come back, brush up on my fundamentals, make sure that I'm still solid. Okay, no, nobody would do that. Why? Well, I've grown up. We've left those things behind. And so when we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. 
The gospel transforms us from slaves under these elementary principles to heirs. And these two verses here, they talk about how this transformation is accomplished. But when the fullness of time had come, well, the time had come. Law is only meant to be temporary, and its time is up. And the law was always meant to just point forward to Jesus. And well, now he's here. We don't need it. And so God sent forth his son, the Godhead, the Trinity. They recognized, okay, time to accomplish our plan that we've set forth since the beginning of time is here. And so Jesus, the Son of God, is sent down on earth to be the one who brings about transformation. And he was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Let's walk through this phrase. Born of a woman, well, not just any woman, but a virgin. He was born by supernatural means. And Jesus had to be born in a human body to a human mother so that he could be truly God and truly man. And he was born under the law. He was under the weight of the law. And he had to be perfect in order to be the right sacrifice so that we could escape sin. He needed to be perfect in order to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. All of these steps had to be met in order for us to be adopted, that we could be set free and turned into the sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos. Right? Even with adoption today, there's numerous hoops and requirements and many difficulties that you've got to meet in order to adopt somebody into your family. Well, for us to be adopted into the family of God, there were requirements as well. And Jesus, our Redeemer, met all of them in order to make our adoption possible. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The gospel changes us again from slaves to heirs. You may have noticed many times whenever I'm reading from the scriptures, I'll often change or change it whenever it says just brothers to say brothers and sisters, because in the Greek that word is meant to be inclusive anyway, so I'm just trying to be more accurate to what the Greek says. But here, I, I don't do that. And here, Paul uses the word son intentionally. It's not because Paul's sexist or because Paul's forgotten about women, but it's because at this point, really only sons get to inherit things. Daughters don't get an inheritance, or if they do, they don't get much of one. But all of us, brothers and sisters, who have put our faith in Jesus, who have been adopted by him, get to be made heirs. This is partially why Paul says there's no male or female. The ground of the cross is level. And we don't just get set free from the law, but now we are, we're heirs. And being an heir, it gives us new rights and privileges. And one of the big privileges Paul has in mind is we don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore. We've graduated, and we don't have to go back. And a significant privilege of our status you see it in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We get the Holy Spirit who cuts to come and live inside of our bodies. Holy Spirit doesn't just live in everyone. He doesn't live in the hearts of all humanity. He lives in the, inside heirs. Ephesians 1.14 reminds us, you know, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He is our seal and he seals us. So what else do we gain as an heir, right? So if you found out somebody left you an inheritance, that would probably be your question. Well, what is it? What am I getting? Well, 
The quick answer is what do we get as heirs? We get to inherit the kingdom of God. And when Jesus finally returns and reigns and he establishes kingdom on the earth, we get to rule and to reign alongside him. And we get an inheritance in 1 Peter 1.4 that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The best part of our inheritance is salvation and the resurrection and the life to come. And this inheritance is available to you. It's available for all of us. The riches of the kingdom never run out. This inheritance isn't just for God's favorite people. It's not just for the elite. It's not just for the holiest. It's not just for pastors with the biggest ministries. It's not just for others. It's for you. It's for sinners. It's for failures. It's for the addict, for the broken, for the desperate. It's for all of us. And how can you get this inheritance? By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross in order to make our adoption possible. And this gospel inheritance is such wonderful news. We might wonder why so much in this chapter Paul sounds angry and disappointed. And well, it's because the gospel can transform us into heirs, but the law transforms us back. The law transforms heirs into slaves. The law transforms heirs into slaves. It reverses what the gospel accomplished. In, in verse 8, he continues, says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. I think this is again a reminder that our sin leaves us bound in the chains of slavery. And we didn't get saved by our righteousness. God is the one who took all of the action. He's the one who did everything. He is the one who saved us. But if this is true, right, if we've been changed, if we've been transformed, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? What slave would ever want to leave their freedom behind and live in chains instead? Throughout human history, men and women have rather died than live in chains. Reminds me of the foolishness of the Israelites, right? After 400 years of slavery in Egypt... They're set free and they're wandering, but then they got kind of hungry. They didn't know where food could be found, so they started to complain and said, ah, maybe we are better off back in Egypt as slaves. Let's try that again. And, you know, as readers, all these years later, we kind of shake our heads at them. How could you be so dumb? Freedom is much better than slavery. Well, Paul says that returning to the law... Believing that you need to submit to circumcision, submitting to the laws that Christ has set them free from, is becoming a slave. Once again, you're going backwards. They're turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles. Look again at that weak and worthless. Okay, the Judaizers, those who were in Galatians, trying to convince them to follow the law and how good it is and how awesome it is, have got it wrong. Paul's saying following the law is not better. It's not for the super holy. It's not for the more advanced. It's not really for the spiritually mature. It is weak and worthless. It accomplishes nothing at all and it cannot help you. It doesn't make you a better Christian. In fact, it makes you a slave. Verse 10 describes partially how they've returned to this slavery, right? You observe days and months and seasons and years. The Galatians appear to be observing or being commanded to observe the Jewish calendar again. You can go read about these days in Leviticus 23. It describes a number of them if you want to mark that down and study it later. It's in other places as well, but that's a primary one. But it's important for us to remember these days and months, they were not optional, 
Okay, they weren't just a Jewish national holiday. It wasn't like our 4th of July where you can blow up some fireworks or have a barbecue or just do nothing at all if you want. No, for the Jews, observing these days was commanded. It wasn't just a nice day off. It was the law. If you eat the wrong bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it means you're exiled out of the community of God. If you break the Sabbath, it means you need to be killed and executed. Now, it might just be me, okay, but I don't want to sign up to follow rules where the punishment for failing is death. Sounds like a bad deal. No thank you. But this is what the Galatians want to do. This is what they are embracing. And the problem isn't that these festivals were bad. The problem is not that the Sabbath is a bad idea. The problem is that believing that you must do these things in order to be saved. That you must do these things in order for God to adopt you or to save you. And Paul shows how serious this is in verse 11 where he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's worried that all of his ministry might have been for nothing. He's afraid that they've left the freedom of the gospel to embrace the chains of the law. And when you submit to the law, when you submit to legalism, when you submit to the rules that human beings set, rules that go further than the scripture, or rules that say, well, you've got to do this, or you're going to lose your salvation, or that's it, then you've become a slave. You're no longer free in Christ, but you are stuck in the chains of sin and the chains of the elementary principles of the world. And if the gospel transforms us, right, if it transforms us into heirs, but following the law, it transforms us back, well, how should we act? Which one do you think we should embrace? Well, your, your last um, point here is that I think Christians should live like heirs. We should live like heirs. I mean, we should embrace the gospel. I think we should live like the transformational power of the gospel has actually come into our lives. Now, verses 12 through 20 are filled with this kind of long emotional appeal from Paul. And, and it's easy to actually get lost in here and a little confused about what his point is. So I'm going to try and walk through it uh, maybe a little slower here and see if I can explain it. Because at the heart of his appeal here is an emotional cry that you can almost see him giving through tears. That he's begging them, stop submitting to the law. But why would you do this? Live like the heirs that you are. That Jesus adopted you to be. Verse 12, brothers and sisters, I, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also has become like you. He says, live like heirs, live free from the law of Moses. Because Paul lived like a Gentile when he was there planting the church. And they should live free like Paul was when he was there. Here we have a Jew who's trying to tell Gentiles to stop acting like Jews. He's not even living under the Jewish law, and so they don't have to either. And he goes and he tries to remind them of how they embraced him and the gospel in the beginning when he showed up in 12 and 13. He says, you did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And so he mentions the Galatians received him, they accepted Paul, and they accepted him later as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. So the Galatians, they accepted that Paul preached the true gospel of Christ to them. They believed it, but now they're turning their backs on him. They don't want anything to do with him. And, and he mentions this bodily ailment. Now, we don't know exactly um, what this refers to. There's been plenty of ink and books and pages of things that have been spilled trying to solve this mystery. 
Um, it, it could have been just an illness or a sickness that he had temporarily while he was in Galatia. It could have been physical problems that he have. I mean, after all, if you remember, Paul had suffered immensely for the gospel. He was stoned, beaten, whipped, flogged, and more. Later at the end of Galatians, he's going to remind us that on his body he bears the scars that he endured for the gospel. You can imagine if you had, if you went through all of that suffering, you'd probably have some chronic health problems. This very well, I mean, this could be the same thorn in the flesh that Paul begs God to remove from him. Maybe. We, we just don't know. But whatever this body ailment is, the point of it is in verse 14 where he says, And though my condition, whatever that condition is, it was a trial to them. You did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul says his physical condition, it would have made it easy for the Galatians to reject him. It would have made it easy for the Galatians to just reject the gospel because they would have seen him this sick and weakly old man who describes his speech in Corinthians as being boring. After all, he put somebody to sleep who fell to his death in the book of Acts, right? And yet, despite all of that, their spiritual eyes were opened and they received Paul and they received his gospel and they were transformed and set free from the weight of their sin, which is why he asked in 15, what then's become of your blessedness? This blessedness, it seems to be talking about what the way God opened their eyes and helped them receive the gospel and they saw it before in the first place. You guys used to be really spiritually alive and aware, and now you've closed your eyes and forgotten. He's asking, I thought you'd been changed and transformed by the gospel. Why aren't you acting like it right now? In the rest of verse 15, he shows kind of their former passion, um, not just for the gospel, but that they even had for Paul personally. Said, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And maybe Paul's bodily ailment it had something to do with his eyes, and that's why he uses that particular example. But the point is, they loved Paul. They would have gone to extreme lengths to aid him and to help him. Just in his physical suffering. And so he wonders, if all of this is true, how can you say to me in 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? He says, why are you ignoring me? Why have you decided to go back to the law? Why are you deciding to listen to these other people instead of to me as an apostle from God? Verse 17, he describes these, these people. He says, well, they make much of you, but to no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Here he seems to be describing those who are, you know, trying to force the Galatians to embrace the law of Moses. Your translation, it might say zealous instead of they make much of you. So that can kind of be a more helpful phrase maybe to think of. So these Judaizers here is really, they're, they're zealous and they seem really excited, but they've got the wrong motives. Their motives aren't for what's good for Galatia, it's for what's good for themselves. Deep down, they really just want converts who are really zealous for how awesome they are as leaders. They want the Galatians to follow the law, but really they want the Galatians to be part of building up their own following. And Paul says, well, you know, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, he's saying, well, their zealousness isn't a problem. It's nice they care deeply about good things, but you know, these men have the wrong motives. 
They just want to build up their own platform and they want you to be a part of it. They don't actually care about you. Not like Paul does in verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Judaizers don't care about the Galatians, but Paul's in anguish over them. He compares himself to a mother in the, the pains of childbirth. And he uses this example of childbirth not just to explain his pain, but he's trying to explain his love and his care for them. That, that he cares for them. He feels like their spiritual mother. And he's worried about them. He loves them in a way that those Judaizers never could. And he just wants what's best for them. For them to live like heirs. He, in, well, in con contrast to these other men who just want to use and abuse them and throw them away and forget them. He ends it in verse 20 saying, you know, I wish I could be present with you. I wish I could change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. He, he longs to be with them physically because he loves them. He wants to be around them. And he, he doesn't want to be coming across as harsh. He's not just angry and trying to beat them up. He cares about them and he wishes they could see it on his face. And notice how he mentions his tone here, right? This is not the ranting and raving of an angry and wrathful dad who's just ready to beat on everybody till they behave. This is the tears and confusion of a mother who can't understand why you do this. Why are you acting this way? I don't get it. There's tears in his eyes as he is pleading with them, live like heirs, live in the freedom of Christ that you've been given. This entire section, kind of from 12 to 20, it's an emotional appeal. It is Paul on his knees begging the Galatians to stop trying to follow the law. And this is the immediate application for the Galatians, right? They should have received this letter. They should have read it aloud in the church and decided Paul is right. It's time to cancel our upcoming circumcisions. It's time to stop forcing people to celebrate the Jewish feasts. We need to stop trying to follow the Jewish diet. We need to stop focusing on the sermons of Moses and let's focus on the sermons of Jesus. They don't need to follow the Mosaic law. They need to follow the Sermon on the Mount. They need to live like heirs of the promise of salvation originally given to Abraham instead of like slaves. Now most of us today, right, we're not really tempted to follow the Mosaic law. But so how, are, how should we live like heirs today? What's kind of the application? Well, for those of you, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you might be tempted to think that you have to do the right things in order to be saved. You might think you've got to read the whole Bible, you've got to understand theology, or start wearing you know, some cross jewelry in order to become a Christian, because that's what it means. No, you don't need any of that. Jesus came to set you free. He came to make you an heir in the kingdom of God, and you can receive your inheritance by putting your faith in Jesus as the only way to salvation, and that's it. Because he's the only way. The law can't get you anything. It'll only put you back in chains. Now, believers, you too need to act like heirs. Now, for us, the temptation can be more subtle. Right? Maybe we don't think we need to follow the law in order to be saved, but we might think we need to do certain things in order to make God love us. That's how we're more tempted to fall into this, I think. There's a popular show now. I don't necessarily recommend it, but it's all about um, children of a billionaire trying to become the heir, and they're fighting to, to get control of their father's company. But their father's a cruel man, and he pits them all against each other, and it's just filled with lying, conniving, backstabbing, and plenty of immoral and ugly behavior. 
on the surface, it seems like it's all about, you know, control and power, but ultimately it's all about these people trying to earn their father's love. If they can just be enough or do enough or do what he wants. But none of them are able, ever able to be smart or cruel enough to do it. Listen, God is not like that. You don't have to do anything to earn his love. Instead, you can just act with the confidence of a child. You can act like an heir. You can walk right into the throne room of heaven, as Hebrews 4 tells us, confidently. Because he is our father. And because we know that he loves us. And we can walk in confidence of that. I was reminded of this um, with Calvin, who's three, and the other day, you know, just told him, as I do many times a day, hey, Calvin, I love you. And he said, I don't love you, Daddy. And I thought, wow, that's, that's not very nice. I don't really appreciate that. Um, usually he says it, but today he didn't really feel like it. And as I sat and kind of thought about it, I thought, you know, it's amazing that he feels that way. It's actually a really good sign that my son has the confidence that he can look me in the eye and say, I don't love you, Daddy. And he's not afraid that I'm going to send him to time out. He's not afraid that I'm going to yell at him. He's not afraid that I'm going to do anything to harm him, that he has the confidence to know that I love him and he can say whatever he wants to me and he will still be loved. Because I love him. This is why I respond, son, it's okay. You might not love me, but I love you. Christian, you don't have to do anything to earn God's love. You can even tell God, God, I don't love you right now. God, the Psalms are, are filled with David telling God how angry he is. And you might read it and go, oh my gosh, how can you do that? Well, you can act like that when you are confident that you are an heir of the kingdom of God and that your father loves you. And that your salvation is not dependent on how good you act and on saying the right things. Christian, God's love for you is not dependent on whether or not you read your Bible today. It's not dependent on how loudly you sang during worship. It's not dependent on how often you attended church this month or last month or this year. It's dependent on the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone. Because of that, we can live free. We can live like an heir of the kingdom of God. Now, the gospel transforms us, so you just a reminder, it transforms us from slaves to heir. The law tries to transform us back from heirs into slaves. So instead we should reject the law, reject legalism, and live like the heirs, the confidence that God has given us. And if you were a former slave and you inherited a bunch of money, what would you do? The last thing you would do is turn down that money and decide, no, nah, I'd rather be a slave again. That sounds better. Yet this is what we do as Christians when we embrace the law. When we embrace legalism and these extra biblical rules, we're rejecting the inheritance of Christ and we're putting our chains back on our wrists. And leave your chains, brothers and sisters, and act like the inheritors that you are. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to transition to a time of communion. Lord, I just thank you. Lord, I thank you for the freedom that you give us. And we thanked you earlier for the material freedom that we experience now in this country, but Lord, much much greater, much more worthy of praise is the freedom that you give us through Christ. Lord, the freedom from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of the law that we can't keep anyway. And that you have adopted us like children who can come and just say, Abba, Father. Father.
that one day when, when we die, if you, if you don't return, we can go and we can walk into your throne room of God, the places that the prophets feared to be. The place that without you we would die if we even saw it. Now we can just waltz right in like we own the place. Not because of who we are, but because of the blood of Jesus. And we thank you. Lord, would you, would you help us to live like your children who have been adopted by you. And to live like the heirs that we are. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I invite our worship team to come back up and lead us um, in worshiping our Savior through song one more time. I hope that you're washed in the blood because it can wash away everything. Through this benediction from 2 Corinthians, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the whole fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace. Thank you.